0: So we are glad you're here this morning. Um, for those of you that are here for the first or second time, we are honored, honored that you would give us part of your Sunday uh, to come and gather with us and worship. Is our greatest privilege that you would gather with us to worship the Lord this morning. Uh, we are into this kind of lengthy, I think, exceptional journey through the Book of Acts. I may be the only one, but I have loved it. It has been a verse by verse journey. We are now 29 weeks in. We have covered 439 verses and. We will finish chapter 12 today, and the thing that I've loved about it is that we've seen this sort of extreme movements, these incredible kind of depth of the growth and birth of the church, we've seen the ascension of Christ, the call and the birth and the sending of the church, we've seen great despair and heartache and hurt, we've seen joy, we've seen the miraculous, we've seen lives change, we've seen this little group of believers go from 100 to well over 10,000, we've seen the rulers of man overthrown, we've seen God exalted, we've seen uh, devastation and hurt and poverty, all of these things rolled together. And it has been a wild ride. And ultimately, Acts is not so much a book or a story or a telling of history, it's, it's a call. It's the call of the church, and it's the call of the Christ follower. And it's why I appreciate this work so much for us, is because this is who we are called to be. In the midst of all of those things, those despair and the struggle and the joy and the triumph, we are followers of Christ and wrapped up in the middle of all of that. In the middle of all of that stuff is the single call to lay down our lives And live for Jesus. What it all boils down to. Obedience. Even in the wake or in the middle of struggle and difficulty and unanswered unanswered questions. Is what we saw last week. In the middle of all that is the call to die to ourselves and live for Christ. It's the call... That every single one of us has and that we have together as a church. And we've been through this kind of array of things. Well, last week, uh, we began chapter 12. um, And we've seen a miraculous kind of movement happen over the past four weeks as we kind of journeyed through chapter 10 and got into verse 12. The kind of gates of the gospel have been thrown open. That the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has opened the floodgates of salvation, not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles, and the mission movement has begun. What we will see next week is that the first missionary journey will actually begin, that Paul and Barnabas will take off on this journey, and this mission movement that we've been talking about will officially kind of throw the doors open to the world as the gospel goes out. And fulfills the great commission that Jesus Himself said in the end of Acts, or in the end of Matthew chapter 28, and called the church to be a part of in Acts chapter 1. That you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth, and the mission movement has begun because the floodgates to salvation have been opened to both Jews and Gentiles. And last week we saw that in the middle of all this kind of incredible, exciting things and the mission movement that's begun, instead of being greeted with like Parades and celebrations and wonderful things it was greeted with persecution deep and real and devastating persecution this time at the hands of Herod King Herod not the same King Herod um, that was kind of around when Jesus was born the one that sort of Herod the Great that had all those babies killed if you remember that story this is actually the grandson of that. And there were four children, and I'll get into that a little bit next week. There were four children, and this Herod was one of them, and he got a piece of the land, and he was in charge of this whole area. He was appointed over this area by the emperor of Rome, Gaius, and he kind of walks into Jerusalem, and he's like, I've got to win the people. Like, I want them to love me. And he knows the Jewish people were having a hard time with these believers, these Christians, and so what he does is he says, I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to try and win their approval, their praise. And he has James arrested, James, the, uh, one of the disciples, one of the leaders of the church. He has him arrested and he has him publicly beheaded, right? And when the people were excited about that, the Jewish people started celebrating. Herod said, well, this is amazing. I love that they love me and they're proud of this and excited about this. So I'm going to even take this one step further and he arrests Peter. Peter was the head of the church. He was the face of the Christian movement, if you will. And he arrests Peter, and he has him put in jail, and the believers there in Jerusalem, they gather together, and they begin to earnestly and fervently pray. That's what we saw last week, and begin to pray, just praying that God would deliver Peter. And so sure enough, in the middle of the night, while Peter was chained to two guards, an angel of the Lord showed up. Peter was sound asleep on the night of his, basically before his execution. The angel of the Lord strikes Peter. Peter wakes up, and the angel says, follow me, and the chains fall off, and they leave the prison. Remember all that? They go to Mary's house, and no one really believes that that Peter's alive. In fact, the servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door, and she, she hears his voice, and she's so excited that she races out to tell everybody and forgets that Peter's even standing there. Right? And he's like, hey, well, I'm still at the door. Doesn't matter. They all come back, kind of believing she's crazy, and they celebrate and then Peter's like, listen, you got to be quiet. I just got out of jail, and they're freaking out. And he finally, uh, they tell the story of James and the other leaders. Uh, not James that was killed, but James, that brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Tell him the story. Tell the brothers, and he takes off, and the people celebrate. Well, morning comes, right, and Herod is embarrassed, and his power has kind of been kind of overturned a little bit. And so he calls all those guards in. He says, what happened? Cross examines him, And when he realizes that nobody can find Peter, he has all of them killed. All those guards, because we learned that Roman code, right, um, if you took the sentence of the prisoner that escaped from you. So if you were a Roman guard and your prisoner escaped, you got that sentence, and Peter was sentenced to going to be sentenced to death, and so those Roman soldiers were executed, right? And that's where we left last week, and what we dealt with last week was the complicated question of why James had to die, why James was beheaded when the church would pray for him the same way they would pray for Peter, and why God's hand was on Peter for rescue and on James for martyrdom. We talk about the, the sovereignty of God in both situations and dealing with the unanswered questions that life sometimes brings. And we look at the church in Philippi some years later about how they dealt with difficult situations and the call to be a community that prays. Okay, that's so where we left off last week. Well, this week we're going to pick up right at the tail end of that. Herod is frustrated and he's angry because his prized prisoner has just been basically taken out from underneath him. And so he's going to go display his power to another group of people to try and exalt himself and demonstrate to the world that he is still as powerful as he once told them he was. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to finish up chapter 12. I was, going to, I was originally, as of, originally, as of like 20 minutes ago, going to go into chapter 13, but we're not going to do that. We're just going to do chapter 12, and uh, we'll start in that next week, right? Why prolong everything? We'll just keep it going. So we're going to get through chapter 12 today. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it up. And I do all that sort of background because I know there are people that have walked in for the first time, and I I want you to kind of get a little bit of understanding of where we've been because it's going to make a difference in where we go. I will always want to present Scripture in its context. I want you to wrestle with it and hear it. We won't proof text and pull things out and try to make my points based on Scripture. We try to take Scripture and see what God is teaching and and telling us. I want you to wrestle with it. So that's where we are. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll dive in and finish up chapter 12 this morning. Lord, we thank you for... um, God, I am grateful for your word that you have spoken to us through its pages through its lines father God, we believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take it lightly, lord We do not believe that this Scripture as we have it is just a source or a guidebook for our life that somehow should shine direction when it's nice and then ignore it when we uh, Don't like it but god it is the very authority for all life and practice and god We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you and god we Take this moment seriously to say, teach us through your word. God, my words will always and forever fall short. Your word is everlasting. And so, God, I ask that you would teach us through it. Take a moment in your own heart, right where you are, and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Whatever that is, whatever he needs to speak to your heart, ask God to teach you this morning. for somebody around you. We do this every week. I encourage you to be in the habit of praying for other people that going to church and being part of worship is not just about you, but it's about you being in the lives of other people, being available for God to use. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray for them even if you don't know their name. Pray that God would, would move in them or, or reveal himself to them in some way. that you would be exalted and lifted up, Lord, that you would teach our hearts this morning. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, chapter 12. So all that's happened. The Roman guard's been put to death, and Herod is embarrassed, and he's frustrated, and he's going to now go and demonstrate his power, or that he still has power, to the other people that are sort of under his rules. So this is what happens in Acts chapter 12, Uh, We'll pick up in in verse 19, uh, kind of where we left off last week. So after Herod had a thorough search made uh, for Peter, and he did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Belastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for all their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called John Mark. Well, that's lovely, right? We'll get to the worms in a minute. I know everyone wants to know about the worms. Um, Believe it or not, not the most important part of the story. Uh, Most fascinating, but not the most important. So what's happening is, is that... Having Peter taken from his command was a blow to the ego of Herod. He was embarrassed. His power was kind of turned upside down. I'll tell you a bit more about that in a moment. And so he immediately leaves to go and demonstrate his anger and angst to a people that were sort of in desperate need of him. So he went up to this town called Caesarea, which is on the northern kind of edge of the Mediterranean Sea from Jerusalem. He goes up there because he's quarreling with people from these two regions, Tyre and Sidon. And they were quarreling because they were kind of a big trade post, and and the king, Herod, they needed him, right? And there was a dispute over trade routes, and so the king goes up there to basically put them under his thumb. ...to remind them who's really in charge because he had just had this devastating kind of blow in the eyes of all the people. And so he travels up there to demonstrate his power because they are quarreling with him. Well, they want the quarrel to end. And so the people get together... And they think, we have got to find an audience with the king. We need to get in front of him and plead with him so that we can make sure that we have food supplies for our country because the king, King Herod, controlled so much of the land and crops and things like that that were sort of under his control that was given to him by the emperor of Rome. And so they find this guy, this this sort of servant of, of King Herod who they kind of won favor with, and his name was Blastus, which is kind of a really cool name, right? If you're going to name your kid a Bible name, that might be a good one. Um, but they found Blastus, right? My son would love that name. And so uh, they found him, and they said, we need you to get us an audience, right? And so they kind of do that, and they I guess they get an audience with the king, but an appointed day arrives. So, so Herod shows up into this town, and he sets sort of this day, and on this important day, all the people gather. And the text tells us that he sat there in front of him in his royal robes and he addressed the crowd. Now this is a really interesting story because there's a Jewish historian named Josephus. And he's a really important guy because in the first century, his historical accounts give light and credibility, as if God's Word needed credibility, but it gives credibility to so much of the things that are poured through the early church in the New Testament through this non-believing Jewish historian. Well, Josephus actually explains this account in great detail. Luke goes through it, but Josephus adds detail to it, and it matches up in every single point, which, of course, is, is right. But Josephus tells a really interesting part of this story. He says that Herod, right, to display his splendor and power, puts on a series of shows for the people. So the people of Tyre and Sidon that are seeking an audience with him, they all come in from these areas to kind of plead with the king. And he puts on a series of shows to celebrate the birth of Caesarea, the town. He puts on a series of displays and shows. And it says that when all the people gathered, Josephus tells us that the king came out in these royal robes that were woven with threads of pure silver. And he sits on his throne... And as the light shined on his robes, he kind of gleamed like the sun, is what Josephus said. So what, what Luke's basically saying, and what Josephus is giving detail to, is that here is King Herod, in all of his sort of pomp and arrogance, showing up in a robe that's made literally of the second most precious metal in the world at that time, silver. Woven with silver thread. And the people hear his voice, and they see him shining like this, this sun, if you will. The morning light off him, and you can just imagine if you had a robes that were woven of metals, basically, silver, the way that that would shine. And the people hear his voice, and he's up there in his throne, and he's wearing these silver robes. And they say, surely this is not the voice of a man, but this is the voice of a God playing into Herod's ego, which is not actually all that uncommon for people. It actually happens to Peter quite a bit. When Peter would do a, perform a miracle that God had empowered him to do, people would fall at his feet, and Peter would immediately stand them up. This happened with Cornelius even. What, two chapters ago, when Peter shows up to Cornelius' house, Cornelius meets him at the gate and falls at his feet, and Peter stands him up and he says, get up, man. I'm only a person, right? Well, Herod doesn't deflect any of that attention, does he? He basically soaks it in, and, this, and the, the, Luke tells us that on that day, right, the people were shouting that this is a God, surely not a man. And because he didn't deflect that praise to God, an angel of the Lord appeared and struck Herod, right? And he died, and he was eaten by worms. Same kind of manner, if you remember just earlier in this chapter when Peter was sound asleep in the jailer's cell, An angel of the Lord shows up, and that same Greek word strikes Peter, this time to wake him and to guide him out of prison. Well, this time the angel of the Lord strikes Herod, and he dies. Now, Josephus gives us more detail. He says that something happened in that moment, and the king doubled over in such agony that he had to be carried out from this amphitheater, where he lay in humiliating pain for five days until his body finally died. And then ultimately the worms, this decomposing thing happened where your body goes into the ground just like you would think. Demonstrating, right, this sort of painful, humiliating death in front of all of these people. So Herod dies, right, because he did not deflect that praise to the Lord. Verse 24, but the word of God continued to increase and spread, and when Barnabas and Saul finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, you may remember uh, that the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas were there for a year teaching these new believers, and they got word that there was a famine in Jerusalem, right? And when they heard that there was a famine in Jerusalem, the believers in Antioch got together knowing full well that that famine was coming north to where they were. And they got their money together, and they sent it with Paul and Barnabas to deliver it down to the believers there because they were struggling. We talked about this two weeks ago. So Paul and Barnabas had finished that journey, and they returned to Antioch. And what we're going to see next week is that this increase, this spread of the gospel is going to come through these missionary movements of which the Antioch church will be the ones that send Paul and Barnabas into the world. But you, you see that this is just a, a transition because this chapter is actually really about God and Herod, right? So the little throw-in at the end about Paul and Barnabas is really getting us ready for next week's text and the sending and the mission movements are going to begin. But we've got to focus today on God and Herod because there is something at play. Now, it's really easy for you and I to look at this and be like, well, here's the deal. I mean, I'm not ever going to be like Herod, right? I mean, surely that evil, awful person is nothing like me. And on one hand, you are absolutely true. Right? You are not going to ever be like Herod. But if you look really closely at Herod's desires, the things that he was fighting God for, the things that he desired in his heart, right? if we look closely at them, they're really not all that different from things that course through the veins in our life. And so I want to look at his desires, and then I want to show you how God overturned them. Because there's several things that Herod desires here, that I think are staggeringly similar to things that I desire for my own life and in my own life. And I think it's an alarm that should sound that as followers of Christ, we have got to be at war constantly, putting to death these things that rise up in our lives to try and die to ourselves so that Christ will live in and through us. So Herod obviously is an evil, awful ruler, just the way he was. All those guys in that line were the same way. But Herod's desires of his heart were what gave him away. They are what become in opposition to God and would ultimately lead to his death and his demise. But the first desire that Herod had that we see in the very first part of chapter 12 is that Herod desired the praise of people. So his first desire was the praise of the people around him. We see this happen in chapter 12 when he first gets to Jerusalem. He figures a way to win the people's heart and their praise, and he seizes James. He has him arrested and literally beheaded publicly, and the people applaud it. They thought it was wonderful, and they thought he was great. And so he said, I like that. I'm going to take it one step further, and he has Peter arrested. Even the show that he was putting on that led to his death was really a celebration of who he was. It was a demonstration that if I do this for the people, they will love Put on these shows, these displays, and gather the people around and let them see what I can do, they will love me in their hearts and I will win back the affection that maybe I lost when Peter escaped. Herod's desire, first and foremost, was for the praise of people. Now, of course, we don't have the platform that Herod has, right? We don't have the power platform that he has. But nonetheless, like Herod, most of us are performers. We perform in our life for the praise, either physically or metaphorically, of people. We want people to look at us and say, hey, great work, great job, good effort. We want it out of our schooling, we want it out of our workplaces, and we want it out of our homes. The things that we do are often driven by our desire for people to look at us and give us some kind of praise, some kind of return. You know you do it. You do it at work. You look for the praise and approval of bosses. You do it at home. I've mentioned this before. I mean, we do things for our spouses and our kids oftentimes just for the return of a thank you. And if they don't, we have to remind them what we've done. Right? I can tell you a zillion times I've gone out and got like Meredith's car washed. Right? Got it all washed and clean. all the time. She goes out there, doesn't even notice anything. I will say, hey, just you notice your car. It's clean. Also, she could say, great, thank you. I am mean, it was no big deal. Yeah, but I had to tell you, right? So it was kind of a big deal. We perform for people. And I know it's trivial compared to what's going on. But we're not talking about the actual result. We're talking about the motives in our heart. See, it wasn't the result of praise that got Herod in trouble. It was the motive that led him there. See, it's not the result. It's not that Meredith has to say thank you for washing her car. It's the motive that I need to gain her praise and affection. It's not all that different from Herod's. Maybe on less of a scale. But just as death-producing, we perform for people. And you know what? We perform for God. We want God to know that we are giving him our best, our effort. And so we do the things morally we try and do, and we apologize and we shouldn't. But we try and earn, as much as we wouldn't like to say it out loud, earn God's favor and God's grace. Even though we know it's an impossibility, morally we like to live that route so that we feel a little bit better about our effort and ourselves and it's all bankrupt. We live as performers, and we live with a desire to have people praise us. All right? Not all that different from Herod. The praise of people, seeking the praise of people, will only and always lead to one thing, the exaltation of ourself. The second desire that Herod has is the exaltation, is the lifting up of himself, or as I say, the look at me. When we seek the praise of people, when we seek the attention of, of people for the works that we've done, it leads us to the exaltation of ourselves, the lifting up of me, the put your eyes on me. And never has this been more evident in history than in the era that we live in with social media. Social media, and I'm going to offend everybody when I say this, so just get ready. Social media has replaced Herod's platform and silver robes, right, for the look at me and look at my life. Now, I know it sounds crazy and overgeneralization, but bear with me for a moment. Herod knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that when he walked out there in robes made of silver, that not one of those peasant people would be able to afford even one strand of the robe that he was wearing. And he knew what would happen when that light shined off it. He knew that that thing would glean and people would love him, and he would elevate himself. He knew that he would draw attention to them, and he would get their comments, and he would get their affection, and he would get their love. Right? Right? He would sit in his throne, and he would speak, and he would wear robes of silver, and everyone would look at his life and say, that's pretty awesome. For most of us, social media serves that exact same platform. And it serves as a platform to say, look at me, look at my life, look at what I've got, look at what I've done, look at what I'm doing, look at me. Think about the ways that we do that, right? I mean, is a selfie any more evidence that we want people to gaze at us what happens if you post a picture of yourself and no one comments? You're heartbroken. Why did, didn't do something right? Or maybe I didn't see it. Maybe I should put it out there. We read comments and likes as if it's some kind of justification of who we are. You know you do it. You go through it and you're like, only seven? My other one got like 50. We post pictures of ourselves for the desperate need that we have, right, to be loved and adored and appreciated. Just scroll through your newsfeed. I dare you to see the things that you posted. What's the difference in walking out in in those type of robes and posting the sort of extravagant life pictures that we do? All of our vacations, wherever we are, wherever we go, wherever we fly to, the things that we do, right? This life on the beach with all these things, we post pictures. Why? So the friends you haven't talked to in high school from 12 years ago can see that you went to the British Virgin Islands. What's the difference in that and wearing silver robes? Anything? Light shining off your face on the beach. Everybody looking like your life is amazing, and they're stuck because they're living with $30,000 in credit card debt, and they can't go there, but they get to watch you. Tell me the difference. You got the humble brag, right? Oh, hey, you know, I usually don't post things like this. Which, you know, My kid made the honor roll. We're so excited. Your kid's not even on Facebook, but you want the world to know that in third grade he can read at a fourth grade level. Woohoo! the kid can read. He's in the top 1% of the population of the world. Thank you for telling everybody. Right? We make those. Hey, you know, I usually don't do this, but I just want to let you know i got a raise at work. You know, or whatever that brag is where you're like, I usually don't say this. But we're waiting for the comments to pour in. Because we are desperately broken, and we want people to feed our broken ego. And so we post things so that they will riddle our news feed with comments. We even post the struggle so that people will feed us full of encouragement. What is the difference between what Herod is engaging in and what you and I do every single day? Now, of course, it's an overgeneralization, but the platforms have just been changed. What if you ask yourself, why am I putting this out there before you ever did it? What's the point? Do I want people to love me, to like me, to appreciate me, to see what I've done? Am I trying to make someone else Feel bad. I've scrolled through my own kind of who I'm friends with. I only know like 40 of those people. The other 980 are people from high school or some kid I met when I was teaching a conference. I don't know them from a hole in the wall. But the point is, we've created a platform that elevates ourselves and says, Look at me, because we're so broken inside. That Jesus is not enough for us, and we have to have the praise of people so we elevate ourselves. Right? Just exactly what Herod did. Just exactly what Herod did. Herod's other desire, which is incredibly obvious, so he's got the desire to, to sort of receive the praise of people, the desire for self-exaltation, to look at me. And then he has the desire for power and control. This is evident, right? I'm going to walk in. I'm going to demonstrate to these Christians that I can control them. Nobody else in history up to that point in time, about 15, 20 years, had been able to do that. So he's going to walk in and do it by capturing their leaders and having them killed. I will demonstrate my power. I will throw this grand display. I will show you how powerful I am and that I can control this thing, right? Power and control. You and I long for it. Not power like Herod per se, but control over our lives. And I teach on this a lot, so I won't go into it in detail, but we fight God for control of our lives. It controls an illusion. It doesn't exist, but we fight him for it, the God of the universe. But what happens here is that God lets Herod's selfishness and his self-centeredness and his desire to elevate himself to play out ultimately into his death to demonstrate to all of us Honestly, how dangerous these things are and where they lead. And at the moment they raise their head up in our life, we should fight with everything we are to crucify them. Because they're not just funny and silly. They are devastating to the life that follows Christ. They are in direct opposition to the call to come and die to ourselves that he must increase and I must decrease. These desires elevate ourselves. So God, in his amazing, infinite, powerful way, overturns all of Herod's desires with several movements. And there's probably more than the, the three that I kind of, I'm going to mention here in a second. But with several movement, movements displaying his providence and his sovereignty and his power. Right? And the first way we see it happening is in the release of Peter. Beginning of chapter 12, Herod seizes Peter having had James arrested. He puts him in jail, and God shows up in this miraculous way and he rescues Peter, kind of demonstrating that he was powerful and that it was not an accident that Peter is released. Demonstrating that James' death also was not an accident, but that God has power and sovereignty in all situations, even the difficult. That through release or through being a martyr, God's power and glory and wonder is displayed. That oftentimes we see martyrdom happening in Scripture and even throughout history. It serves as an elevation of God's power and a passion kind of outpouring for the people of God. That they see those as moments to rally around the eternal nature of who God is. And not in the fact that God can't. But that even in the middle of difficulty, God can. And God displays his sovereign power by releasing, kind of thwarting the power movement of Herod, if you will. Showing Herod that even in the middle of what he thought was so great, God's power is greater. We see God overturning Herod in in his ultimate death, right? I mean, that's kind of the simple and most profound way that we see it. God allows his self-centeredness and his, self, his self-driven nature and the exaltation of himself to play out ultimately to his death. And Luke adds that he was killed, struck by the Lord, angel of the Lord, literally, and his body was eaten by worms. The reason that's in there is the demonstration of the most powerful person all of these people had known, because none of them had ever met Caesar, the emperor, but they had met King Herod, the most powerful kind of creature that the world could produce. His body was devoured by worms, by the most lowly and, I don't know, kind of insignificant creature of all the earth, right? That the body, the greatest body that humanity could produce was devoured by creation that God made It was seemingly insignificant. It's not just to say something's gross. Luke was making an incredibly important point. God wins. We cannot come in opposition to the God of the universe and win because even the lowliest, if you will, of his creation will trump all that we can make as humans. God wins. And then finally, what we see happening at the very end is that God's word spreads. Verse 24, the word of God continued to increase and spread. So Herod's ultimate desire to put God's, People to death to end christianity to stop this religious movement was not only overturned but it was propelled forward that the gospel increases the word of god spreads the god's ultimate movement in overturning selfishness and desires and our desire or Herod's desire to elevate himself was trumped by the going out of the word that it will not be stopped. God will not be stopped. Now, this is incredibly encouraging to the early church, right? Because they were facing persecution, struggle at the hands of this person. They had just watched him execute James. And God, through this incredible movement of triumph, has showed them that he will be victorious, even over death. God wins. The call of the Christ follower, the call of the person that gives their life to Christ is death death. To ourself. Obedience. It's not about doing and performing and making sure that God sees our best. It's dying to the selfishness that courses through my veins. It's dying to the part of me that wants to receive praise from people to fix my broken ego. It's dying to the part of me that wants recognition from the world. It's dying to the part of me that fights God for control and power. It is dying to all of that on an everyday basis and saying yes to Jesus. Because if you want to be really honest, I mean, really honest, we are much more like Herod than we care to admit. It's played out in a different way, perhaps. But the root desires that lead to death are all the same. But God, in His infinite, amazing, extravagant love, sent His Son, Jesus, that if we believe in Him as our Lord and Savior, we have access to trump that death. with eternal life that begins today, here, and lasts for eternity. That is the gospel. That coursing through our veins. Our selfish prideful desires. That say look at me. I can. I want. I will do. And Jesus died to trump all of those. So in the middle of our sin. In the middle of our selfishness. That we surrender our lives to Christ. And he overcomes our sin and death. With life. So like it or not. You're at war. You're at war with the selfishness that rages inside of you. Fight it. With every ounce of who you are, fight it. As John said, John 3.30, he says, He must increase. I must decrease. Maybe that should be the goal of not only our church, but as us as followers of Christ.